What number is this, Chip? Zilch 179, a tribute to Bob Rafelson. <laughs> okay, don't, mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short, I know. You're listening to Zilch, a monkey's podcast. Welcome back to Zilch, your podcast full of monkeys. Today, we are looking at Bob Rafelson, who recently passed. Bob was one of the architects of the monkeys, along with Bert Schneider. And they not only revolutionized television, but they also revolutionized film. And as I record this, it's a week after the Mike Nesmith demo for Tapioca Tundra was featured on Better Call Saul. And I'm just going to read a little bit from this article. The Monkees fans were in for a big surprise during the most recent episode of Better Call Saul titled Breaking Bad. During a critical scene in the season 6 episode that paralleled the man Jimmy McGill had become and the man Gene Takovic is rapidly slipping back into becoming, viewers heard a Mike Nesmith tune. The song was featured in a key montage scene thrilling fans of the Monkees and Nesmith. Better Call Saul writer and director Thomas Schnoz is a huge Monkees fan, therefore using a song from the band seemed only natural. In a December 2021 tweet upon hearing of Mike Nesmith's death, Schnoz admitted that the band's music affected him throughout his life. He wrote, I can't stress enough how much this band meant to me growing up and continues to mean to me today. Nez and Mickey Dolans were beautiful at their show at the Greek last month, and my heart goes out to his family, Mickey, and all the Monkees fans. Thomas Snaj merged his work and his favorite music for a Monkey Surprise for Better Call Saul viewers. He also said, that's the original Mike Nesmith demo of the song Tapioca Tundra. It's from the 60s, he recorded it, and it eventually became a Monkey song, that was much more psychedelic than the version on the record. But I'm a huge Monkees fan. I saw Mike Nesmith do that song on an acoustic guitar in concert, and it always stuck with me. It had a different meaning when Nesmith wrote about it. It's about the band's connection with the audience, but that line, it cannot be a part of me, for now it's part of you, fits so well with Jimmy, Gene, Saul, trying to put who he is, you know? I'm not that person anymore. It's part of this person. It just feels like it works so well with the emotion that he's going through, he concluded. Going Down by the Monkees was featured in Breaking Bad as well a few years back. It may seem weird to bring this up now, but you have to take a look that all of this is because of the work of Bob Rafelson and Burt Schneider. The films that they made, the art that they made, the TV show that they made, all broke ground. People like Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould, who produced Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, you know that they watched the films of BBS. You know that they were influenced by things like Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, Drive He Said, A Safe Place, The Last Picture Show, The King of Marvin Gardens, and so on. It really did change how we look at the art of cinema in another way. Breaking the fourth wall again. So all of this art, cinema... TV show, music, 
It all came because of an idea, and it's an idea that cannot be a part of me, for now it's part of you, and it is part of all of us. Later in the show, Andrew Sandoval will be joining us. Right now, here is Christine Wolf to talk a bit about Bob Rafelson. I gave her a very powerful narcotic, and I'm sure it will be effective soon. Barbara Stanwyck may be in for a slight shock. On July 24th, we learned of the passing of Bob Rafelson, one half of Raybert Productions, who created the Monkees. I know that everyone in Zilch Nation and the Monkees fandom as a whole feels a heightened sense of emptiness today as we acknowledge that another person central to the Monkees is gone. For Ken, Sarah, and myself, to say that Bob Rafelson left an indelible imprint on our own lives is an understatement. If Rafelson's Hollywood career had ended with the Monkees, it would have been enough for me. His vision to bring an Americanized version of the Beatles' film A Hard Day's Night to television revolutionized TV and shaped the youth culture for a generation as much as it reflected it. Funny, timeless, while at times being subtly yet pointedly topical, the Monkees TV show helped parents see that they need not fear America's young generation with something to say. And at the same time, the even younger generation was shown that in a few years, they too could make their own mark on the world. Now, much has been written about Rafelson's filmmaking career, but I think it's important to take note of it here. The unimaginable success of the Monkees allowed Rafelson, initially through Ray Bird and then via BBS Productions after Steve Blauner joined Bob and Bird, to bankroll his first two films, Head and Easy Rider, which were filmed simultaneously. Although Head was a financial failure and a critical failure, at least initially, Easy Rider exploded onto the youth culture scene. Easy Rider also proved to the studios that their stodgy, star-driven, big-budget formula was in need of being replaced, and Rafelson turned out to be instrumental in forever changing how Hollywood made movies. Five Easy Pieces soon followed, and that earned four Academy Award nominations. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. For anyone interested, I strongly encourage you to get your hands on a copy of the Criterion box set, America Lost and Found, the BBS Story, which contains the film's head, Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, The Last Picture Show, The King of Marvin Gardens, Drive, He Said, and A Safe Place. There is a lot of good film in that collection, and uh, it's definitely worth watching. So rest in peace, Mr. Rafelson. Thank you so much for everything you gave to the popular culture from the 60s on. We are sending love and prayers of comfort to all who knew you. Hi, friends. Ralph Williams, one of the world's largest board leadership. Your Majesty. He acknowledges a king higher than you. But you are the Messiah. Reason. Joining us right now on the Zilch Hotline is a man who needs no introduction to anybody who's a Monkees fan. 
Andrew Sandoval, thank you for coming back to Zilch. Uh, it is always good to have you here. And in this case, it's, it's a sad occasion that brings us together. How are you doing? I'm okay, Ken. How are you doing yourself? I'm all right. I just saw where Tony Dow passed away. Yeah, I'm so sorry. And it's only going to get worse, seriously. Uh, there was a video made last fall by a gentleman who does a show called Pop Goes the 60s. He said, you have to get ready. you got to brace yourself if you're a fan of classic or uh, 60s rock. This next few weeks, months, and years are going to be brutal, you know. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, and the window's been closing for a long time, unfortunately. But, yeah. um, you know, that's just the human condition. So. Yeah. Bob and Bert, they're the architects. They are the people who put this all together. And as you know, and everybody probably knows, we recently lost Bob Rafelson. Uh, can you talk about what this loss means to us? Well, you know, Bob was the guy who came up with the idea of the monkeys and Bert was the guy who made it happen. And I think Bob and Bert are the reasons why the monkeys have been so enduring, not just the idea, but you know, it wasn't just an off the shelf type of let's put the Beatles on television. I think that that was the cynical viewpoint of what the monkeys would be, but we all know uh, all of the people who listen to this know that the monkeys are so much more than just that. You know, there are four individuals who came together to create something special that's been really enduring. And, you know, Bob and Bert picked those four individuals and then they decided that, you know, they were going to let those four individuals really be themselves on television and on record um, and just really kind of put their own stamp on things and go into weird directions. And certainly the movie Head was one of the stranger directions the monkeys went in. And that was all because of Bob Rafelson. You know, he came up with the concept, he directed it, and he, you know, realized it. So uh, I think that the reason why we're still talking about the monkeys and why we're, you know, we're hundreds of episodes into this podcast versus, uh, you know, Captain Cool and the Kongs or the kids from Caper, nothing mm -hmm. to take away from them. But there's a difference with the monkeys and, and every other group that started out as a television show. Uh, they're there's a phenomena that's just completely different. So and that has to do with Bob Rafelson. And when you think about it, had this been almost any other production, you never would have heard Mickey Dolenz's voice as far as singing the songs. You would have heard Boyce and Hart doing that, you know, like the original theme song and stuff like that. That's what we would have gotten. It would have been them lip syncing to someone else's tracks. Right. You look at the most successful counterpart to the monkeys which was the partridge family and you got david Casty's voice and shirley jones's voice on some of the tracks on the early uh pilot you don't get all of that mm -hmm. but you know instrumentally the partridge family was never a group the way the monkeys became a group and they never you know turned out four songwriters which the monkeys had four songwriters all four of them turned out really good material and in one case with michael nesmith amazing material so uh it, you know there's no comparison with the monkeys and part of that is bob rafelson you know i mean mm -hmm. and bob had a had a an incredible career before the monkeys and an incredible career after the monkeys too uh and i got to know him over the course of decades really um 
you know, and spoke to him on the phone and met with him in person several times. Um, he was a fascinating character, really uh, edgy and provocative all the time. Uh, I think there's a great quote I was reading of his uh, just the last few days where he said, there's never been a day that's gone by where I haven't done something illegal. And uh, I think he enjoyed putting people on edge and, and doing strange things. And I think he did that with the monkeys. You see that in the interviews, him trying to get something out of them that they wouldn't normally just give out. And that's what the show is really. The show is, it's it's masquerading as a normal sitcom about a group, but it's really not that. He really was an agent provocateur in many ways. Uh, I know that he was very passionate about his politics and uh, I share many of those thoughts as well. But uh, I mean, you, you even take a look at something as groundbreaking as the fact that Mickey Dolan's got to be Mickey Dolan's, right? He, he didn't have to be Herman Munster. Like Fred Gwynn was never Fred Gwynn in the Munsters. He was Herman Munster. And, you know, that seems silly to say that now, but it was quite groundbreaking to have a TV character retain their name, even if it wasn't their original surname, you know. Right. Yeah. And initially, Mickey was going to be Mickey Braddock because that was he was known on television for Circus Boy. I mean, it wasn't that distant a memory at that time when the Monkees debuted. But uh, but, you know, that all got changed around. And and Bob, you know, really brought something unique to the television screen, too. You know, the 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 Monkees on Tour episode, the last episode of season one, is probably my favorite because it documents something that is so incredible to be a part of, you know? Um, and and that's that was Bob's idea to, to go out there with cameras and to really capture it because he was swept up in it. And he maintained his interest in the Monkees despite the fact that he was on to all these other things. In later years, I mean, I remember when Good Times came out, he was like, well, I'm going to go out to the car and blast this like I used to in the old days. And, uh, you know, he would be excited. He would say, send me monkey's toys. I want monkey's toys. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you guys have some of those at the office? You know, I, I want send them all here. You know, so uh, I talked to him again in 2020. I guess that was the last time that we spoke on the phone. Uh, I was clearing up some stuff for my book and specifically some pre-monkey stuff. And he was very, very crotchety about it. But he also, he said, you know, well, why are you doing this? And I said, well, listen, you know, it's lockdown right now. And I, I really feel this obligation to get this book done. I, I really want to finish up the work I did. He's like, well, so you're using me to just, you know, because you're bored. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, you know, Bob, it's, it's not that, you know, uh, anyway, but he was good about it. But then it's it's haunted me a little bit because he had in the last month or so been emailing me and I would email him back and not get any response. And, and then, um, you know, I wish I'd called over to the house just to see if he would pick up or something. But I don't know what was going on. I know he'd been ill. So um, I certainly wasn't staying away from him because of that. I, I just I feel bad because, you know, I think he wanted to say you know, goodbye or something. I, I don't, it's hard to know. It's really hard to know. I know, you know, other people who have reached the end of their life and you try and, you know, wrap up things if you can and, you know, whatever important details you want to get out there. So 
Uh, I'm hoping I know the details you wanted me to know, but that's all I can hope for and that he passed uh, on his own terms. And, you know, he was at home and um, he left behind a great body of work outside the monkeys and some amazing films. And prior to the monkeys, he was a producer uh, of television shows and director and was a also worked in radio, did some amazing stuff. And he pretty much uh, changed Hollywood forever, right? I mean, when you think about it, the two of them uh, with BBS, uh, the independent film making may not be what it is today. Had it not been for them, they created cultural touchstones, some very important cultural touchstones that to this day reverberate. Uh, and it all started back with Head, you know. It, they, they, he was constantly breaking down things and thumbing his nose to authority, yet at the same time uh, cracking the rules, putting them back up and then breaking them again. And, and I'm talking about things like, for example, something as simple as like, hey, we're running a minute early, right? And then right. he tries to get the guys to say something that breaks that fourth wall, not only just the looking at the camera and say, isn't that dumb, that sort of thing, but the the interviewing interviewing the people who have those names you know if they star trek never did that for example you know they never said and now let's see what leonard nimoy is doing we're a minute early on this episode so that was something that really was so different and i mean it it led to things like the office i mean you don't even think about that but like breaking the fourth wall and 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 all that stuff so he always tried to mess with the form and it seemed like he it was never enough uh right on up through to head it was still how can we break this system how can we reinterpret the system how can we rebuild and make it something different i think that head is a genius piece of work and uh, the, the fact that everybody that was involved with that it's such an amazing film and uh, as my appreciation for it grows as time goes on but it's just absolutely amazing we had two interactions with bob here and they were emails we did an interview with james frawley he asked for a link to that and i sent that to him and then the second time was when Peter Mills, who authored that fantastic book on the movie Head, I understand that he and Jack Nicholson both read that book and uh, wanted a link to that as well. I asked him to perhaps come on the show. He said, I, I don't think it's for me. But it was interesting to know that he was out there still caring about this thing that he had put into motion and helped create all this time ago. Yeah, for sure. For sure, he 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 did maintain his interest in it, and uh, I'd like to say a few things in response to what you're talking about. And uh, one thing with Head, you know, he didn't make the movie that the Monkees maybe should have made at that time commercially, or that they would have wanted to make, um, given where their career was. But I think it's one of the reasons why we're still so interested in them because it's such a unique artifact and and such a strange left turn. And the monkeys were famous for those things. And with the episodes, you know, the interviews, he really started that in the audition process. And he carried that through to the to the series as well. So that that was interesting. You know, you see in the Blu-ray box or the BBS box, you see those uh, interviews where he's talking with the, uh, the monkeys and he's the guy off camera. So he just carried that through. And a normal television show, what they would have done if they were a miniature, they would have padded out the show with, with some filler. 
but you know he's he saw it as an opportunity to be creative so uh, i think that's great and i'd like to say something about bert schneider too who left us you know more than a decade ago i guess and uh the reason why we're still talking about the monkeys today is also because of him i saw somebody else had posted on uh, my uh, facebook page oh well i guess you know bert was the money guy well Bert was a lot more than that. You know, he's the guy who talked MTV into doing that marathon in February of 1986. Yes. And I have a feeling that most of the Monkees fans that are really around right now came off of that, you know. And and the the whole selling of the catalog to Rhino happened because Bert was suing Sony Pictures and got that as part of the settlement. Amazing. So, you know, these guys they did a lot in the background and and in in an age where you know these days everybody goes online to tell you what they're doing these guys just did it and some of the stuff is not well known but it's not always about saying what you're doing it's more about what you've done and these guys did a lot and they did a lot for us they brought us something that we just love so i'm thankful for both of them they're really uh, the architects of why we are all still talking about them, why we are all still together and part of all of this. Exactly. I'm shocked that there's not much more talk about this in the press. Like I've not seen like the Today Show and, you know, all these different shows that normally would have clips on YouTube all about someone's passing. It's It's just not happening well you know part of it is also the way bob lived his life which was yeah that. he was very private he was very private but also he he gave up on you know doing movies you know more than a you know 20 years ago uh and you know he was unpopular with the studios because he just wouldn't follow any rules i mean and that was always the case prior to the monkeys and after you know, his success with Five Easy Pieces and, and King of Marvin Gardens and, and all these other movies that he made. So, um, you know, the whole thing about the new Hollywood is that, uh, you know, they, they broke ground. They made all these uh, extraordinary movies. But by the early 1980s, the movement was over with, you know, um, and moved on to other things. And indie cinema is a totally different thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's just a phase. It was like a, a like a decade long phase that lasted for maybe 15 years that started in the late 60s, you know, like Bonnie and Clyde and, and those sorts of movies. And and then, you know, picked up with Easy Rider, which is producer of. And then by, you know, by the early 80s, it had gone back to uh, a, a more of, a, you know, a studio system and different entertainment. Yeah, but. If you, if you take someone like Quentin Tarantino, there is no Quentin Tarantino possibly without a Bob Rafelson. I mean, you take a look at the film, what, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's You can see where that could spring from the work that they were doing early on. Well, well, certainly. But, you know, the 70s movement of films like, you know, Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola, those, you know, that all came out of the BBS thing that that was kind of made possible it was it was a reality just like you know a hard day's night made the monkeys possible so um these are all building blocks and uh, you know bob wasn't all for taking victory laps you know he was he was uh more just into doing his own thing 
Well, Andrew, you are welcome back to Zilch anytime you know that. Uh, we always have a chair and a microphone open for you. I want to thank you for taking some time today and talking about the passing of this very important, actually two people. Uh, Zilch was not a thing at this point when uh, when Bert passed away, but here we are. And uh, it, it's it's sad that we have to come together during this, but as we record this today, Tony Dow has just passed away and uh, you know this is why we are blessed to have the music and the tv show and the movie and all of our memories and one another so exactly and it's connected us and you know bob helped connect all of us we you and i would never have talked if bob rafelson hadn't you know come up with this idea so just think about that mm-hmm I don't know. You're pretty snappy dresser. We might have reached for the same suit at some point. <laughs> well, no, I may not have been able to afford a suit if Bob Rivelson hadn't to come up with a good idea on the monkeys. So. And, and with that, <laughs> that says so much in itself. Uh, but uh, thank you for being part of this with all the rest of us. And uh, just thank you for taking a few seconds to come on Zilch and talk today about the importance of this man. My pleasure, Ken. Keep keep doing it. Keep the monkeys alive, please. We're working on it, brother. Thank you, and you do the same. Right. Be safe. Take care, Ken. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. I'm going to play a quick ad about something that we believe in here at Zilch from our good friend Sarah Clark. And on the other end of this, we'll be back with some clips of Bob Rafelson telling a bit of his own story. Hey, Zilch Nation. Sarah Clark here. And I'd like to let you know about my new project, the Kind Leadership Challenge podcast, where I empower educational and library leaders to detox their organizations. My PhD in higher ed leadership, my experience coaching, consulting, and presenting to library leaders all over the world, and a 17-year career in libraries from the front desk to the dean's office taught me that leaders don't have to be perfect to build a better world. And now I want to share that same leadership lesson with all of you educators and librarians listening. And if you aren't a teacher or a librarian, please share this with a friend who is. Head on over to KindLeadershipChallenge.com or just type Kind Leadership Challenge into your podcast app. If nothing else, check out episode 12 to learn how Ken and I handle the leadership challenge here at Zilch. Thanks in advance for checking out the show and stay kind now. Our ship better be sailing out of that harbor on its way home within 24 hours or we're coming in at I fancied myself as a movie director and I got sidetracked making a series. But if ever there was a series that I could have enjoyed making, this was it. Because it violated all these rules. Between the time that I kind of came up with the idea of this folk rock band, the Beatles were emerging first out of Germany and then out of Liverpool and then finally making their way towards America with hit songs. And one of the movies, The Hard Day's Night, had appeared. So the notion of a crazy frolicsome four had been legitimatized by the appearance of the Beatles. The initial strike for putting the word out and trying to attract an audition 
I think was in Hollywood Readers, and it said something like, must come down for interview, a codified way of saying, be straight for the interview, and they all read it, and then a line formed, and it was about, I don't know, 600 guys outside of Columbia Pictures. And I can recall sitting with people many of whom the professionals wanted to change their name and be the monkeys. Steve Still said, if you could get me some teeth and some hair, I really would like to audition. And I said, hey, we haven't got that kind of money that we can fix everybody up. Well, there's this other guy who looks a lot like me, and I think he's really a great man, and he's playing in the bear in Huntington. And that was Peter Tork, and that's how Peter Tork came in. Baby Jones had appeared in a Broadway show, and so somebody knew about him. They came in. How did you get at the show? How did that all start? Oh, I used to act at school and whatnot, and uh, they said I should be an actor, but I wanted to be a jockey. Uh, How did you get started on that? Uh, well, I'll tell you about that. I just, you know, I... I, I, I shot, as I recall, 14 screen tests. And I would sit and talk to them. Uh, so what do you want me to do? Sing. Uh, hey, Dave, you want to know something? Honestly, hold on for a second. What? I really think you should have done a job. Good evening, Ed. And it was really kind of an interesting way of trying to let them be themselves, catch them a bit off guard, not trying to parade around in what they think the monkeys was going to be, but to be who they were. Well, uh, Nazareth is my real name. Well, how'd you get the blessing? It's a pseudonym. How'd you have to pick the blessing? Well, uh, why are you asking me that? It's <laughs> weird. Get on something else. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I, I normally cast, by the way, not, not necessarily with a camera, but I don't like to talk about the parts so much. We did do the pilot, and apparently this was the lowest rated show ever screened. And we met with the executives. <laughs> we met with them all. Bert was in the room. Uh, and uh, they said, look, let's not throw uh, the expression good money after bad. Let's not throw good money after bad. I said, I'll tell you what. Uh, give me 24 hours to recut the pilot. So I cut in those original interviews where they were very engaging. And the next day, it tested as the highest rated uh, show and went from zip to this freak, uh, we want it, we'll sign it for two years, you're on. Uh, and we're desperate for it. And it sort of uh, it's taught me a bit of a lesson, you know, about how fragile uh, the concept of quality is in all these matters and how much luck and numbers and whimsy has to do with it all. When we started the company, and that was a series of long, long conversations that went on for days and days and days about what Bert and I wanted to accomplish, it sounds pretty 
self-serving at the moment, but I think one of the mottos, uh, so to speak, for these conversations was, look, America does have talent. It seems to lack the talent, to recognize the talent. But between the two of us, I think we can do that. We took some chances, and the show reflected our confidence in people who were willing to try anything because they didn't know any better. You had four actors, basically, that nobody had seen or heard of. Out of 32 shows, 29 were directed by guys who hadn't directed before. They didn't know any more about television than I did, so they just went off half-cocked and did their thing, and we loved it. I think it could have gone on for a third year with a lot of manipulation in politics. But for the most part, it was a, a, a two-year show and it was over. So the audience wasn't there for it. And I think most importantly, the monkeys didn't want to do the show anymore. These are guys who are 17, 18, 19 years old, selling 23 million records a year, outselling the Stones and the Beatles at least for a couple of years. It begins to kind of uh, infiltrate their brains. Not that they walked around with a huge arrogance, but they felt certainly that they were capable of going on to individual careers. Certainly Mike Nesmith. And they didn't like the idea of having to go on the stage and look like monkeys, look like the television show which appealed to 14-year-olds. They wanted to appeal to 25-year-olds. They wanted, in a sense, to be an adult rock and roll group. And that was going to be way beyond the reach because of the media. Uh, they were stamped. I think that there was an opportunity for them to go on the road that they couldn't do while they were making a television show. Those were all very legitimate reasons for, uh, in one sense, the demise of the monkeys. Why did I make this film is a very complicated question. I don't want to do this anymore, man. Oh, these fake arrows and this junk and the fake trees. Bob, I'm through. Oh, stink, man. My life in the creation of the monkeys as a television show as a record act as a live appearance group had been completely obsessive for two to three years and everybody said well then why would you want to make uh, this movie get away from it do something different this is not what you want to do and i mean uh, uh, steve and bert everybody counseled me against it my wife everybody I felt that there was one thing missing from the monkey mythology. First of all, they hadn't made a movie, and that, that would complete all forms of media. And secondly, I felt like, well, there's a truth that hasn't been told, and that is the truth of the accusations about the monkeys not singing their own songs, all the so-called adult assault on their sensibility. So I thought that I should make a movie about that. In other words, expose the monkeys and my relationship to the monkeys 
as truthfully as I possibly could, although in a very abstract manner. I felt like this was an opportunity to do something when it came to the movie, but even in the television show, that was a continuum of the American avant-garde way of making movies. With the monkeys of all things, nothing could be more uh, contradictory in a way. That would be something like uh, making an ice cream cone out of mud. I wrote in the first script that film was not a holy parchment and was to be ripped and shredded and run backwards and painted on and everything. And that's something that I had, uh, I, I think I had picked up somewhat from uh, uh, experimental filmmakers. And I watched a lot of that sort of thing in the 50s, like Brackage, like Anger. Norm MacLaren used to paint on the film. And all of this became part of the dictum for how we were going to make the monkeys show and, to a certain extent, the movie as well. I met Jack Nicholson in a film society, which maybe he was one of the organizers of. And when he liked uh, the movie, he would kind of stand up and do something like you would do in, at a basketball game. Like, yeah, 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 and raise his arm. And I somewhat uh, reacted the same way to, to, to moments that I liked in movies. Oh, fantastic, yes. And, you know, that kind of exuberance. And we became friends. And not long after, Bert and Steve and Bob decided to make head, I asked Jack if he would write it. And he had not heard of the monkeys. And so he said, you know, monkeys, what's that? And I told him. And, and then proceeded a long courtship, uh, not only with uh, Jack and uh, my partners, but Jack with the monkeys, uh, to figure out what would be in this movie. Before we started writing the film, Jack and I went to Ojai, and there was this grand meeting with the monkeys. And then, quite frankly, uh, there was a bit of acid involved, and Jack saw the movie in his mind as being sort of structured uh, like an acid trip, and we began to write the thing. And we were writing it in Harry Dean Stanton's basement that Jack slept in. One of us would go on to a rant about, okay, now this is what's happening, and uh, the monkey's doing this, and then they go into water, and the water changes color, and then there's porpoises. And the other one would uh, sit and say, yeah, that's good, that's good, okay, let's get that down. And then it became a difficult task as to which of us was going to write it down, because we usually told too stoned, and it was a miserable task having to write it down. It was great fun imagining the things. And at one point during the course of the movie, Jack said, so what do you think? I said, Jesus Christ, Jack, I'm sorry. I, I, I got lost. I was trying to imagine the darkest thing on the planet. And he said, yeah, well, what would that be? I said, that, that would be Victor Mature's hair. He said, Victor Mature's hair? That's brilliant. That's, that's going in. We, the whole movie takes place in Victor Mature's hair. He was old Hollywood in the most formidable way. And that's the way we collaborated. And by the way, that was not the most incisive image. Most of them were from Jack. They're pretty weird, too. We wanted to put into the movie people that the American public sort of would liken to the monkeys in terms of 
how they felt about them and their stature. Don't give me that! Come and look at all over the world for you! Timothy Carey, crazy man, outlawed by everybody. Annette Funicello, Miss Mickey Mouse. Carol Doda was in it, and she was the first topless dancer in San Francisco. Sonny Liston, the big badass of the time, because he was already in prison for, I think, manslaughter for a number of years before he even fought Ali. It was a sort of a chorus, if you will, of, of losers, of, of people with bad reputations, who I personally liked to the same degree that I liked the monkeys. It's not right. No, Bob, it's for the image, man. Think of it. The kids aren't going to dig it, man. Me hitting a girl. The monkeys were not stupid, and they all understood that they were making fun of how they came to be. And also, they understood that the director was a bit of an asshole. Don't worry about it. We'll just... Yeah, well, that's what you always say, Bob. Don't worry about it. Uh, things of that sort uh, were going on in the movie throughout. On the first day of shooting head, the monkeys acquired a new manager or somebody who wanted to be their manager. Now I'm waiting as a dream all my life to shoot my first movie. And <laughs> the monkeys didn't show up on the stage. The stand-ins came. So I started shooting the movie with the standards. It make any difference whether the monkeys were in or not. I'll shoot the fucking thing. I'm shooting my first movie, goddammit. And at the end of the day, after shooting, Bert is sitting completely freaked out in his office and says, there is this man. His name is Jerry P., who subsequently becomes a billionaire, who at that point wanted to be the manager of the monkeys. And he is arguing with the business affairs director of Screen Gems across the street on the fourth floor. So I said, well, what are we supposed to do? He said, well, we're waiting to see what the terms are going to be. So I said, uh, but what do we do about tomorrow? It's costing us a lot of money. What do I shoot? He said, I don't think we can, Bob. I think we'll just cancel. So I said, well, if we do that, I want the right to cancel. Bert said, okay. And there was a whole bunch of coke on the table, and I sniffed it up and uh, went over, filled with exuberance and energy, to the fourth floor and grabbed this executive. Oh, hi, Bob. Nice to see you. <clears throat> By the hand. And threw him down four flights of stairs and said, this fucking movie is off. Now get the fuck off the lot or I'll fucking kill you right here. Something pretty insane. And I had a reputation for doing this in the past, so people actually thought I might be real and do it. I wasn't going to hurt anybody seriously, but my temper was riled up, and it was supported by some blow. There was a style for each and every one of the movies that are in the movie because I didn't think. I'd ever get a chance to make a second movie, so I was going to put all the movies I ever dreamed. That's why there's a boxing movie. And that boxing movie would be the John Garfield Body and Soul homage. And when the Arabs ride out, that's a kind of homage to David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia. There's a lot of little movies in it. And within those movies, we're also making some kind of commentary beyond the homage. In the middle of their crossing the battlefield, 
Suddenly, a guy runs out and takes a photograph. Now, that's a point that I was trying to make. He'll never make it through this intense bombardment. Nobody could. Wars, in some sense, are staged for the media, if not created by the media. And I found it ugly uh, and worth making fun of. And what I was trying to say is that television, in a way, makes you inured to the realities of life. Oh, yes, it brings it into the living room, but then you don't have to fucking deal with it. The money's in. We're made of tin. We're here to give you... There is no distinction made between the close-up of the young girl responding hysterically to the appearance of the monkeys and to the shot of the assassination at the same time. And then the hysterical girls attack the stage where the monkeys are playing and shred their clothing off. But they're not the monkeys, they are wooden dummies. They'll shred anything as long as it's the thing to do. Rape the stage, attack the musicians, real or unreal, who cares? Um, and it was just pointing out that there was a sort of a mindlessness to, as the Beatles used to complain all the time, to the appreciation of the music. Davy and Tony Basil danced together in a thing called Daddy's Song. I just had the idea to shoot it entirely on a white stage, entirely on a black stage, and then cut just two or three frames at a certain point. And it looked as if it was all created in some some laboratory, but it was done uh, literally on the stage and then simply editing. It's very hard to look at these things when they're flash cuts like that, and they hadn't been done that much. And the drugs were proliferating at the time. So we knew it caused a bit of a psychological reaction. I had such an aversion after making this film, to doing anything like that again for the rest of my life, that I became so egotistical about it that in each successive picture that I made, I counted the amount of cuts and diminished the amount so that things were in long, sustained takes and there would be no more sharp. I had done that. I had done it for nine months. I was crazed having done it, and I wasn't interested anymore. Now I was interested in performance. So my whole life changed. We called the film Head eventually. It had the title Untitled. It had the title Disturb, spelt in an unusual kind of hip-hop manner. And then Head, because it was all about taking place in somebody's head, because it's a very surreal, somewhat psychedelic movie. It was surmised by those of us who worked behind the scenes, but particularly by the people who were now responsible for marketing this film, that it was best said that the monkeys were not in the movie. And so when the advertisements came out, there's no mention that the monkeys are in it. 
the poster was a very successful poster, but not for advertising a movie. Now, all of this was somewhat at the behest of Marshall McLuhan's associate professor, John Brockman, who thought this was the way to promote the film. Brockman, who was this young, crazed scientist, said, well, here, I've rented this small room and a camera, and you're to sit in this chair, and I'll take your picture. And I said, well, I don't quite get this campaign, John. Nobody knows what I look like. What difference does it make whether it's my head or not? He said, well, it, you know, I mean, people will know eventually that you made the movie, and it'll be your head. I said, well, maybe, maybe. Tell you what, John, sh show me how you want me to sit, and let me take a look through the lens. And he sat, I photographed him, and it became his head. And even when it went on television, there was no writing on it that said, see the movie coming from Columbia, opening... Hmm. Then Columbia was required to change those ads because most people thought their TV sets broke when they saw the ad and there was no sound. So they had to write it down, but we insisted on writing it backwards. He thought maybe this would work because we didn't think it could work any other way, I guess. We had decided to open the picture in the theater that nobody had ever heard of before because it played only Spanish-speaking movies. Jack and I got seriously worried about this the night the picture opened that nobody was going to see this movie. So we had these little stickers of head, and we kept putting them all over New York. We started at 5 o'clock in the morning, and we put them on toilets and put them on post office boxes, everything, every, everywhere you could imagine. I think 15 people showed up. My mother and father were there, and they were somewhat um, uh, disappointed that uh, they were the majority of the audience as uh, this couple and that uh, a lot of the other people in the audience demanded to get their money back. It started on a Friday and I think it was over by a Wednesday. Gone. It didn't open up in Westwood or something like that. And that was just the theory that was on that people were going to discover this movie that they were going to find some kind of gem-like uh, quality to it, and they were adults, and that they were going to tell their friends, and the film would build off the word of mouth. Now, that was exactly the theory of releasing all the subsequent BBS movies. They all opened quietly, not necessarily in unheard-of theaters, but in one theater or two theaters, and then Hopefully, because of the reviews or what have you, this um, uh, m movie um, would mushroom. But in this case, uh, it didn't work. I wish uh, uh, that I could attribute uh, the failure uh, of the picture to the fact that it was ahead of its time. That might have accounted for it in some fashion. It's also quite possible that it's not a very good movie. Or if it isn't a good movie, it is not a conventional enough movie for anybody to come out of it and say what it's about. He is saddened by the news. It cannot be a part of me, for now it's part of you. And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Burt. 
If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around. <laughs>